Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about the Mongol invasions of Japan. This is when... Mongol Emperor Kublai Khan twice attempted to invade Japan and uh, and bring it into his empire and was twice defeated in the most unbelievable way. Now, this is a cracker of a tale, uh, obviously a bit of naval history here, which we all love. But what's really interesting is the ultimate legacy of this campaign, this invasion campaign. It had important, important lasting consequences for both sides, particularly in Japan, uh, whose isolationism, you know, ultimately pulled through this entire saga and then was, you know, further enforced uh, during the age of European colonization, a couple of hundred years later, as we talked, you know, talked about this in, in episode 117. Um, and it also led to something very famous that we now associate with uh, the 20th century in the Second World War, which we'll discuss in a bit. Um, we've talked about the Mongol Empire, on the other hand, uh, before. Uh, we've talked about them very, very early on, actually, episode 17. And uh, today they're up to, their, up to the usual tricks, going around conquering the pants off of uh, anyone and everyone. But it's not Genghis Khan who's in charge this time. However, it's his grandson, Kublai Khan. Uh, very famous, you've probably heard of this bloke. Um, uh, his summer palace, Xanadu, of course, very famous indeed. Uh, but this time, Kublai Khan, it's his empire going up against the Kamakura Shogunate over in uh, in Japan. And I, I guess I've already kind of spoiled the ending a little bit by telling you the invasions were unsuccessful. You won't believe how they ended, and there's definitely a tale worth telling as, as we get through it. So let's get stuck in. Let's kick off the story of the Mongol invasions of Japan. We've got, we've got a lot to get across today as ever, so let's not waste any time. We're going all the way back here, all the way back to 1274. That's when the invasion kicks off properly, uh, when the Mongol Empire, as I say, is ruled by Kublai Khan, the grandson of the famous Genghis Khan. Now, Genghis Khan, of course, one of the greatest conquerors of all time, forged what would ultimately become the largest ever land empire uh, largest contiguous land empire, second only to the sea-based British Empire. And Genghis died in 1227. He was succeeded by his son, uh, Ogadai Khan, who was succeeded very briefly by his son, Guyuk Khan, before a different grandson of Genghis's, Munga Khan, uh, took the throne in uh, in 1251. Now, finally, in 1260, Kublai Khan, who's Munga's brother, uh, he becomes emperor and he sticks around for almost 35 years. So, it's a couple, you know, the sort of a couple of chop, bit of chopping and changing going on with the, uh, with the, uh, the Mongol throne there, but ultimately uh, Kublai Khan emerges on top and he is just as set on conquering as his old grandpa was, even with the, to be honest, the Mongol Empire, you know, in a bit of disarray. It's starting to fall apart. It's not to split off uh, into smaller khanates. Uh, Kublai, he's still chucking around the left and the right all over the place, still wanting to uh, to add to the territory that he's in uh, in charge of. Um, technically, he was the the empire of, you know, the Mongols. Of He was, you know, he was in charge of the Mongol Empire in name. He only really exercised authority over China and Mongolia, uh, most of the western expanse of the Mongol Empire, you know, all the area that was conquered by Genghis years ago. Um, it was effectively under the de facto control of his political rivals, some of whom he was actually related to. He had to fight a civil war against his younger brother in 1264. Um, but ultimately, he's the bloke who's in charge of the fracturing Mongol Empire at the time of our story. And that's a different story, the, the fracturing of the Mongol Empire, a very interesting one, but doesn't really come into this one hugely today. But it's important to note here that he, that, that Kublai Khan is in name the, the emperor of the Mongols, but effectively not really. He doesn't have full control, full power over an empire that is very, very swiftly crumbling. Anyway. He's still very interested in, uh, in conquering. 
And much of his attention is pointed at this stage, right? Rather than westward like his grandpa, it's pointed now towards southern China. Uh, to the south of the era that Kublai controlled the southeast part of modern-day China, the Song dynasty is still in charge. But Kublai, he does everything he can to change that. And eventually he crowns himself emperor of China, as we'll discuss later. But he's got Korea under his belt at this point, as we start our story as well, of course, Mongolia. And in 1271, he establishes the Yuan dynasty, even whilst fighting the Song to the, uh, to the south. And he uses Beijing as his capital, or, or um, uh, Dadu, as it was called back then. And here's where it gets a bit confusing, because uh, Kublai was, of course, he was, he was Mongolian. But while he was trying to bring China under the dominion of his new Yuan dynasty, he really attempted to to sinicize himself and his empire. Sinicization, obviously, referring to the process of, of making something more Chinese, similar to anglicize for, for the English, for example. So he's attempting to sort of paint himself as now this uh, this Chinese leader rather than this Mongolian leader in order to win over the hearts and the minds of the people he's trying to conquer, as well as the people that he's, he's ruling uh, from, you know, ruling over from from Beijing, from Dadu. So often the the, the sort of the, the confusing uh, consequence of this is that often this invasion that we're going to talk about in a second, it's referred to as being fought between the Chinese and the Japanese. Um, and to a certain extent, that's true, as it was actual mostly Chinese soldiers who did the fighting, as, as well as some Koreans, uh, even if they were being led by a Mongol who's you know going about trying to create this image of himself as being Chinese. So it does get a little bit confusing there when we when we sort of consider who was fighting whom. But anyway, look, Kublai, the bottom line is he's fighting the Song in the South, no worries. He's got Korea under, under his control, and now he's looking eastward and, well, ho, ho, mate, what's this on the other side of the sea? Bloody Japan, mate, another neighbour to add to the old empire here. So he's having a great time thinking about how he's going to bring them to heel. Now, he might have been very busy beating up the Song Dynasty, but he's not so busy he can't stick another iron in the fire. Um, but again, I guess, sorry to do this to you again, before we get to the invasion of 1274, there's a, there's a little more foreplay here, just a, just a little more foreplay we've got to get to here. There are a couple of reasons that Kublai Khan wanted to bring Japan under his control. He wanted to go and give him a hiding. Uh, prestige certainly came into it, for sure. But he also wanted to end trading between the Japanese and the Song Dynasty to the, to the south so as to hobble. The, the Song Dynasty, and, uh, and and also by conquering Japan, you know, he'd then have access to its armies, further bolstering his position and, and making the war in the South easy. So a couple of different reasons for him to want to conquer the Japanese. But he attempted, right, a route of diplomacy before just, you know, sort of, uh, again, getting the, getting the bloody sword out of the sheath there. So in the late 1260s, Kublai starts sending off emissaries demanding submission and tribute. He sends them off to Japan. Um, which, as I say, was ruled by the Kamakura Shogunate. Now, a shogun, as you might know, the military dictator, who was the de facto ruler of the Empire of Japan, the emperor, much more of a figurehead at this point, uh, didn't really exercise much power at all, really. But this is an interesting point in Japanese history because for much of the Kamakura Shogunate, the shoguns also didn't have any real power. It was actually the shikans who did, the shikan meaning, uh, shikan a title meaning regent. Um, it was a, a hereditary sequence of shikans who actually ruled Japan during this time, and they all came from the Hojo clan. And the bloke in charge, when Kublai Khan starts uh, knocking on the door, sending his emissaries, is a bloke who's, uh, whose name was Hojo Tokimune. So Tokimune, the de facto leader, the de facto bloke who's in charge of control, even though uh, you know there is an emperor, there's a shogun, whatever else, it's this uh, it's this shikan Tokimune who's in charge. Now Tokimune, he's got no time for the emissaries, whatever. He's, he's a busy fella. He doesn't have any time to deal with these emissaries. They're coming over. They're offering you know, veiled threats. They're saying that Japan needs to submit to the Mongol Empire as a vassal, start paying tribute. And, you know, the, the messages from Kublai are saying stuff like, you know, they're hoping to avoid the use of arms in the matter and other sort of saber-rattling stuff like that. The Japanese, having absolutely none of it, they are not interested whatsoever. They don't even allow the, uh, the, the emissaries to land on Honshu, which is the main Japanese island. They just kind of ignore them and send them back to Kublai without an answer of any kind. So they're just absolutely ignoring these, uh, uh, these emissaries here. 
And Tokamuno is reasonably confident that, you know, nothing too much will come of it. Even if it does, ah, we'll see off any attack from the West. No dramas, don't even worry about it. But Kublai kept pestering him, right? He kept pestering Japan nonstop. He's, you know, he sent six emissaries in five years. He's the sort of bloke that these days he'd be texting you nonstop asking why, you, you know, why you've left him on red. Bloody unbearable. But uh, back in those days, six emissaries within five years, he's very keen. And Tokumin in Japan, they just ignore him and ignore him. They're just having absolutely none of it. Japan, both before and after, this was a highly isolationist nation and, and didn't have a lot of experience in international diplomacy. So they keep giving uh, Kublai the cold shoulder. And eventually he decides that enough is enough and it's time to make a, you know, to actually follow through, make good on these, uh, on these veiled threats that he's been making. And so it is. In 1272, Kublai Khan orders the construction of an enormous navy and raises tens of thousands of troops in order to prepare for an invasion. And that is finally, at long last, what brings us to 1274 and the first invasion itself. Kublai, he's readied hundreds of ships and tens of thousands of men. The actual numbers are kind of hard to say. Estimates vary from source to source. Some say 600 ships, some say say 900 ships, Uh, while the estimates of his soldiers range, range from 16,000 all the way up to 40,000. So it's, it's very difficult to say exactly how many people uh, were involved here. The Japanese, on the on the other hand, they had a maximum of 10,000 soldiers at the ready. So from the outset, no matter you know, no matter who you're asking, the Japanese are well and truly they are completely outnumbered here, regardless of, of which estimate you you, uh, you use. The Japanese are are, are out are outmanned pretty significantly. Anyway. Kublai, he's assembled this massive fleet. He's filled it with an equally massive army, uh, which is mainly composed of Chinese and, and Korean soldiers that had been conscripted, as, as well as a bunch of Mongols as well to boot. But uh, this is where the Mongol slash Chinese thing gets a bit confusing once again, because a sizable percentage of the army is Chinese and, uh, you know, was being sent off by a Mongol who was styling himself as a Chinese fella. So... You know, it does it does sort of get a bit murky there as to uh, how you identify this army. But, you know, in any case, regardless of all that, this fleet sails from the Korean Peninsula, being built by a lot of the boats there built by Korean shipmakers, and sets off, sets off from the Korean Peninsula in early November 1274, so towards the end of the year, and first, uh, first lands on the, uh, Tsushima, which is an island between Japan and Korea, and then went on to the Iki Islands. And this was an absolute bloodbath. Let me tell you this. The Japanese uh, only had hundreds of people to defend the islands, let, you know, never mind thousands or tens of thousands. Um, and uh, the invaders with their massive, colossal armies, tens of thousands of people, as I say, left a bloody swath of destruction in their wake. They're murdering, they're pillaging their way across these islands as they headed further east. And while this gave the Japanese a bit of, a bit of forewarning that an invasion was on the way, it also gave them forewarning as to the nature of this invasion, the fact that a huge army had been assembled, the fact that they didn't seem to be taking any prisoners, and that uh, it looked very much like a bloodbath was, uh, was on the horizon. Anyway, on the 18th or the 19th of November, the fleet arrived in Hakata Bay, which today is where you'll find the city of Fukuoka. Uh, it's a sheltered bay where the Mongols could launch their invasion from the from the hundreds and hundreds of ships that they'd, they'd sailed over. And look, despite Tokimuni being pretty phlegmatic about the whole situation, around 5,000 defenders had still been readied and, uh, and, and sort of had drawn up in, in Hakata Bay in preparation for this invasion. They'd, uh, they'd, the Japanese had heard about what had happened in, in uh, Tsushima and in Iki, and so they had scrambled to assemble some kind of defensive army. But again, this is just 5,000 people up against, what, up to 40,000? So it's not looking good for the Japanese from the outset here. And the Mongols, they moved into the bay and they moved to set up a beachhead and started to unload troops on the shore, and the Japanese were hopelessly outmatched. And it wasn't just because of raw numbers either. Check this out. During the Battle of Bunai, as it became known to history, the Mongols began their campaign of invasion by completely 
overrunning the Japanese defenders. Thanks, obviously, thanks to their numbers. But in addition to this, their tactical superiority on the battlefield, as well as their advanced weaponry. The Mongols had by now fully adopted gunpowder weapons. You can go and listen to episode 115 to learn more, uh, you know, learn all about that. But they brought to the battlefield, therefore, right, some of the most cutting-edge modern weaponry that the world had ever seen. For example, they had rudimentary rudimentary grenade launchers. These were small catapults that could launch gunpowder grenades towards the enemy, absolutely devastating, not just because of the fact that they killed people, but also the fact that they, they terrified the horses that the Japanese cavalry were, were, were riding, and also the Japanese soldiers themselves who had never seen something like this before, these exploding, this ordnance, basically, that created huge big bangs and, and, and smoke and, and, and ripped people limb from limb if they were unlucky enough to be in the firing line there. So you can just imagine the chaos and confusion that, they, that these, uh, you know, these, these grenades sowed amongst the, uh, the Japanese troops there. But on top of that, even many of their non-gunpowder weapons were superior. The Mongol bows uh, could fire over, could fire much more accurately over much longer distances. And on top of that, they shot poison-tipped arrows at the Japanese. And of course, as I'm sure you probably already know, the Mongol cavalry was completely, completely unmatched. And the level of coordination that the Mongols achieved while fighting, particularly with their cavalry units, was unlike anything the Japanese had ever seen. The Japanese units, we'll, we'll talk about more. We'll talk more about them in a, in a minute. But these Japanese units, right? They're acting semi-independently. Of course, you know there are no radios. There's nothing like that to coordinate movements or whatever. But Mongol units, particularly the cavalry, they used booming drums that beat out prearranged signals to communicate orders to the various units on the battlefield, which achieved a level of unified coordination that Japanese had never seen before. They they allowed mass orders to be given to thousands of people at the same time. Allowed troops to move in concert with one another, you know, without the use of something like a radio or, or, or instant messaging or, or whatever else like that. So this meant that these highly mobile, highly trained and highly skilled Mongol cavalry units were dominating the battlefield against the Japanese. And this was a style of, of warfare that the Japanese samurai were just not used to. They they were not, that was, this was not how the Japanese, uh, you know, samurai classes fought. Uh, the way that things usually went for them was was a little bit like this. Instead, a samurai would step forward, announce his name, his heritage, and then challenge an opponent directly. And then there would be a one-on-one fight with all sorts of bloody, you know, rules and regulations and what have you. The moral code, there was a moral code that sort of governed these these conflicts. Uh, the, the, the moral code that governs samurai culture was called Bushido. And it's kind of similar to the European com- uh, concept of chivalry. Not, you know, it's not a sort of one-for-one um, a substitution, but it, it's largely, you know, it's, it's a similar sort of concept, uh, the rules of, of warfare and etiquette and, and behavior and that sort of stuff. Uh, Bushido for the samurai in the same way that chivalry was for European knights. The Mongols, however, they're not going to play by these rules. They're not, you know, they're not bound by the rules of Bushido. And uh, so when the Japanese samurai assembled, expecting, you know, one-on-one combat and the like, they were instead met by armor-piercing crossbow bolts and gunpowder grenades and highly coordinated attacks from cohesive Mongol units. And if any samurai stepped forward to try to, you know, issue a challenge like they would uh, under the code of Bushido, the Mongols would just run up and attack them in a group. I mean, so so much for the, the you know, rules of war that the Japanese had all adhered to for forever. The Mongols didn't care about that at all. So 
they were effectively outclassed, outgunned, outmanned, and also importantly outmaneuvered on this battlefield, and really couldn't hold a candle to the uh, to the Mongols as they as they leapt off their ships and in, 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 onto the battlefield. Although it wasn't completely one-sided, in in, in, in fairness here, the Japanese uh, did have some advantages, in particular uh, close combat. Their close combat weaponry and armour was far superior to the Mongols. Most of the Mongols weren't even wearing armour in the first place, and so the armoured Japanese samurai were able to cut them down mercilessly when they got closer. Um, the iron armour of the Japanese gave them a decided advantage in the hand-to-hand fighting amongst the infantry, not to mention their very long and very sharp swords, which the Mongols and the Chinese actually wrote about later, saying that it was one of the most fearsome attributes of the Japanese warrior, their swords, which were so deadly, especially in, in close quarters combat, because the, the Mongols were using short swords effectively, and, uh, and, and the longer swords of the Japanese meant that they were just cut to pieces uh, if they got too close, not to mention the armor and, and everything, uh, all the rest of the stuff that I was telling you about. But unfortunately, it was not enough. It was not enough. The Japanese, they had their cavalry, you know, the cavalry had their horses scared out from under them by the gunpowder explosions. The Mongols carried shields with them everywhere, which rendered the Japanese archers much less effective as they, uh, than they would have been. And all of the other stuff that I talked about, the maneuvering, the, you know, the, the, the various other tactical advantages, the gunpowder, what have you, that the Mongols had ultimately meant that after a single day of brutal fighting, the Mongols had driven the Japanese off the beach altogether. A third of the Japanese army lay dead. The rest had retreated to Mizuki Castle, whose remains that you can still see today, uh, in order to try to recuperate, prepare for the next wave of attacks from the Mongols, now that they'd seized the beach and established a proper beachhead. And so licking their wounds, and with almost certain defeat, staring them in the face as they surveyed this enormous Mongol fleet and the, and the huge army that was pouring out of the ships, the Japanese waited in their castle for the next attack. However, this attack never arrived. The Mongols, for their part, they didn't follow up on their initial victory with another push against the Japanese, and we're not, even to this day, we're not completely sure why. They may have had supply issues, or they may have been worried about a nighttime ambush by the Japanese, but whatever the reason, right, the Mongols, after establishing establishing themselves on the beachhead and clearing out an area uh, for them to uh, continue to press the attack at some point, they withdrew to their ships for the night. They didn't actually stay on the shore. They withdrew to their ships and further didn't leave their ships in the bay. They actually withdrew out into the open sea. And it's not exact. we're not exactly sure why they did this. A strong wind was blowing in the bay, it was, it's, uh, it's said, and the water was very choppy. The crews of the ships perhaps were worried that they'd be run aground by the weather if they remained uh, inside, the, inside the bay there. And what happened next proved to be a, a bad move because uh, they decided, for whatever reason, to withdraw their ships into the open sea. The Mongols, they sailed their ships back out of the bay, ostensibly to protect them from the weather conditions, and ended up doing the exact opposite of this. If you'll believe it, the Mongols, they sailed their ships out of the frying pan into the fire. They sailed from the, out of the choppy waters of the bay into an actual literal typhoon out in the open sea. A ferocious storm whipped up during the night, and once the Mongols had exited the bay, they were torn to shreds by this by this typhoon that, again, had just sort of come at them out of nowhere. Of the hundreds and hundreds of ships that the Mongols had sailed over to Japan, around a third of them sank beneath the waves, and the ones that didn't sink were, of course, heavily, heavily damaged. And on top of that, the death toll was staggering. Thousands and thousands of soldiers and crew members drowned as the typhoon raged, 
What a freebie for the Japanese. What a freebie. They're huddled up in their castle. They're expecting this devastating attack to follow up the successful Mongol landing. But instead, they just watch as the Mongol ships leave the bay and sail right into a bloody typhoon. They can't believe they're like the Japanese. They're running around bloody high-fiving each other. Oh, boys, we did it. We've bloody done it. In the coming days, right, they're just on cleanup duty as wreckage and some survivors sort of wash up on the shore and obviously all the survivors are then executed immediately by the Japanese. They're scoring this whole thing as a great big fat W. I mean, regardless of what the cause is, it'd be like, a, be like bloody playing a game of soccer and, you know, a, a meteor falls on the opposing team and when you're 10-0 down, you just go and score a bunch of goals and then <laughs> and then call it a win. Absolutely ridiculous. The Japanese can't believe their luck, as I say. Anyway, the remainder of the Mongol fleet, on the other hand, they, they slowly limp back westward to face Kublai Khan in Dadu, again, modern-day Beijing, as I said, uh, and try to explain this colossal failure to him. They've lost as many as 13,500 troops and, not to mention, hundreds of ships, and on top of that, of course, the ones that did make it back were all heavily, heavily damaged. So very, very bad situation for the Mongols. While on the other side, bloody firm handshakes, pats on the back all around for the Japanese. Although, admittedly, not that firm, uh, it has to be said. The uh, the Kamakura shogunate, they weren't particularly generous with their rewards for the defending samurai. Typically after a victory like this, the samurai would get land grants and you know whatever else. They'd get rich rewards for their triumphs. But the shogun had barely rewarded a hundred of the ten thousand people who had fought in this battle, um, this, and this did not make them very popular amongst uh, the people who had fought, particularly amongst the samurai class. Even those who hadn't fought in the battle weren't impressed uh, with how stingy Tokimura and his government were being. Um, and it generated a lot of ill will between the shogunate and the samurai. And, you know, look, in fairness, their tight arsedness might have had something to do with what else was going on at the time. The shogunate had ordered the construction of new defences in Kyushu, uh, preparing for a second invasion. Huge stone walls were thrown up, forts dotted along them, including a two-metre wall in Hakata Bay, just in case the uh, Mongols came back to try their old tricks again. These walls were massive, by the way, huge. Uh, wide uh, wide enough at the top for horses to ride along. They were kilometres and kilometres long. And um, additionally... Great big stakes were driven into the mouth of the river and uh, on other potential sort of landing sites. So any Mongols trying to jump out of the boats would get impaled. And um, on top of this, the the Shogun also took a head count of all the samurai in Kyushu and reorganized them uh, to be ready for another attack. Also set up a, co- a system of coastal sentries to keep out an eye for invaders uh, so they wouldn't be caught with their pants down. And all of this, the reason I'm telling you all of these new defenses is all of these, all these different new defense measures cost a lot of money. So they didn't have a lot to spare for rewarding those who had fought. And this came back to bite the Kamakura Shogun on the ass, as we'll discover. That's quite a ways away yet. But uh, just keep in mind, I guess, the fact that the the response from the Shogunate in the wake of this first invasion, the fact that they didn't really reward any of the uh, the soldiers for, for their efforts, or not many, about 120 got, uh, got rewarded out of the thousands and thousands that had fought, um, there are a lot of unhappy chappies in the wake of this, even though it was a Japanese victory. A lot of the Japanese soldiers felt they'd been robbed or shortchanged because they weren't uh, hadn't been rewarded. Anyway, we'll go back to Kublai Khan now. He is not deterred. Back uh, back on the other side uh, of the sea here, he's not deterred at all. He is still adamant about bringing the Japanese into his empire. He's going to do it by hook or by crook, I can tell you that. Uh, although he wasn't in a rush. He wasn't in a rush after the absolute shellacking that he got uh, at the hands of the Japanese. Well, not really the hands of the Japanese, let's be honest, at the hand of the typhoon. Um, but uh, yes, no, he was not uh, not in a hurry to repeat the experience. In uh, 1275, he sent over another group of emissaries to negotiate 
rather than fight. He instructed them this time they were not to leave without an actual explicit answer from the Japanese. He wasn't going to let him just palm him off, ignore him this time. He said to the embassies, now listen, you've got to make sure you get a response. No matter what it is, you've got to get a response. Don't come home until you've got one. So these emissaries, they head over in 1275, once again, duly ignored by the Japanese. So they start to hassle and nag away at Tokimune, saying they're not going to leave without a response. So Tokimune gave them what they wanted and responded to them. He, he bloody chopped their heads off, mate. This was, I mean, certainly a response, probably not the one that the Mongols were hoping for. It was a flagrant violation of the sacrosanct protections that emissaries are supposed to have, obviously. Something that the Mongols, as you remember from episode 17, take, took very, very seriously at the time. Uh, and uh, Kublai Khan, as you can imagine, not happy about this at all. The executions only served to strengthen his resolve in uh, in fighting the Japanese. And so after this affair with the diplomats, uh, Kublai, he set up a government ministry. And uh, this is not a joke. He set up a government ministry named the Ministry for Conquering Japan. So quite a specific mandate given to that, uh, that ministry there. He was dead set on bringing the Japanese to heel, but it would be quite a while before he took more action on that front. His wars against the Song Dynasty were much more immediate, uh, much, you know, much bigger, a much bigger concern for him at the time. And so for the next few years, uh, the hostilities between Japan and the Mongol Empire, they're kind of put on hold for a while there. Anyway, the years go by, and uh, in time, Kublai, he was successful in uh, defeating the Song Dynasty. In 1279, he became the very first non-Han emperor to unite China entirely. So he's now calling himself, of course, not only the, the, the Mongol Empire, but also the Empire, Empire, Emperor of China. And this victory was, uh, it was critical, particularly when it comes to the, uh, the attempted conquest of the Japanese. The reason for this, of course, is now, after having conquered the Song Dynasty... It meant, right, that Kublai Khan had a whole new range of resources in order to now challenge the Japanese. You remember initially he was challenging the Japanese to actually aid his uh, his conquest of the Song. Now it's the other way around. Now his conquest of the Song dynasty is actually going to aid him in going after the Japanese here. It enormously increased both his political and military power, conquering the Song dynasty. And so it was that in the same year, in 1279, another set of emissaries was sent off to Japan, once again demanding capitulation to the Mongol Empire or there would be some consequences. But... Rather than a capitulation, we just ended up once again with a couple of decapitations. The emissaries, once again, they had their heads chopped off, or if you look at it another way, I guess they had their bodies chopped off. And that was that. Kublai Khan, he's had enough. Japanese, they're going to pay the price. Time for a bloody invasion, mate. In 1280, Kublai summoned a great council of war to, to Xanadu and drew up plans for a second invasion. This one, of course, now bolstered by the massive gains that the Mongol Empire had made from conquering the Song Dynasty. Kublai knew that his previous defeat had been due to bad luck. The typhoon had scuppered his ships and his invasion along with it, rather than, you know, some sort of great piece of tactical strategic brilliance from the Japanese. He knew that it was just bad fortune that had been the uh, the end of his uh, of his previous invasion, but he still wasn't going to be he still wasn't going to take it lightly. He still wasn't going to he still wasn't going to muck around. He was sure, he was confident that he'd be met with victory. Uh, so long as he committed sufficient resources to the invasion and what resources he committed. He launched a two-pronged attack this time, one from Korea, one from southern China, and this attack would involve around 3,500 ships and up to 145,000 troops. The numbers are probably a little bit smaller than that, to be honest. They were probably sexed up a little bit to make it seem all the more impressive than it actually was. Modern historians reckon it was around half that, maybe 70,000 troops. But still, nevertheless, this invasion force was going to be several times bigger than the last one. Men were conscripted. They were forced into service from across China and Korea. And they were made ready for the invasion to launch in 1281. And so, in the summer, 
the Mongols, they set off again. This time, as I mentioned, divided into two fleets. One of them stopped off in Tsushima and Iki, uh, and once again gave them another absolute thrashing, these poor islands. Um, however, after reaching the Japanese mainland, right, the Mongol fleets, they had a lot of trouble making headway when it came to landing an invasion force. It turns out that the Japanese defences that had been set up in the intervening years they did their job after all. An attempted landing at Hakata Bay was abandoned after the Mongol army utterly failed to overcome the stakes and the walls and the other defences that had been built since the last time. And similarly, in other places like Nagato, the, the Mongols were, were roundly repelled by the Japanese and their increased defences. We don't have the best idea of how many Japanese samurai were called up to fight in these battles. Some rough estimates put the number at 40,000, still massively outnumbered. But the defences that they'd prepared did the job, and the Mongols, for all their numerical advantage, had trouble actually getting any momentum whatsoever behind their invasion. And the Japanese, they didn't just sit behind their walls either. Whenever a Mongol fleet attempted to land anywhere, the, uh, the Japanese would organise small boats to row out to where the Mongol fleets were anchored under the cover of darkness, right? So they go at night time. They'd run nighttime raids to sow chaos amongst the Mongol fleets. They'd stealthily board these ships, they'd kill as many crew as they could while they were sleeping, and then set the ships on fire before rowing away again. And these raids were enormously effective, way more than you'd think. Obviously, the Japanese had the home ground advantage. They could get away with this sort of thing, rowing in and out of harbour like this, whereas the Mongols couldn't launch raids very effectively from their ships. But the real... Right, the real advantage that the Japanese gained from this. Remember how I said before that the bulk of the Mongol army were conscripts, a lot of whom were from the recently conquered Song dynasty? These Mongol troops, they weren't motivated. They weren't enthusiastic. They had very low morale. They had very little love for Kublai Khan. They didn't believe in the, in the, the, the conquest, the invasion, the, the cause they were fighting for. And these raids only made it worse when, you know, their mates are being killed in the middle of the night as their ships are being burnt. The Japanese, on the other hand, they're, they're busting their, their guts and fighting with all their hearts as they defended their homeland. Their, the numerical superiority wasn't enough for the Mongols at all. Their demoralized, their disloyal troops went up against the highly motivated Japanese defenders, again, sitting behind these brand new defenses that had cropped up in the last couple of years. And so the wind was very much in the sails of the Japanese. If you'll believe it, the Japanese managed to hold off this enormous invading force for not days, but weeks Weeks and weeks, over almost two months, in fact, almost two months, Kublai sent in reinforcements. He did his best to keep supplies flowing as they started to run short for the fleets. But still, the Japanese held firm against all odds, against these overwhelming numbers here. Finally, after waiting for reinforcements, after waiting for resupplies, uh, the Mongol fleets, they combine and they get ready for a huge invasion attempt. They're going to concentrate all their forces on one invasion attempt here, very close to Hakata Bay, uh, near the first where the first invasion took place, hoping to put the whole thing beyond question. They mustered all the ships, they put together a truly, a staggeringly colossal fleet, and in mid-August in 1281, they descended once again on the Japanese coastline to launch what they, are, what they very much hope will be this decisive attack to start the invasion properly. Now, knowing that the Japanese would be up to their old tricks again with the nighttime raids, the Mongols decided not to give them any easy targets. So they, they lashed all of their ships together. They turned them basically into large defensive platforms, removed all the stragglers, all, you know, all the other ships that were floating off by themselves, easy pickings for these raids. They, they tied them all together. To, uh, to bolster their defences against uh, raiding uh, Japanese uh, boats there. 
And as they had an army that was, you know, three times the size of the Japanese samurai, the Japanese defences, they'd been tested to the limit. They'd fought very bravely. But here, with these floating pontoons filled, bristling with, uh, with, with battle-ready soldiers, sheer numbers were now bound to prevail once this fleet finally landed and the tens of, and tens of thousands of troops uh, unloaded onto the beaches and, 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 and launched the attack once and for all. But of course, the landing never came, and you will not believe what stopped it. On the 14th of August, with the Mongols readying their invasion on their conjoined ships, guess what happened? I mean, look, honestly, honestly, at this point, it just sounds like lazy writing, right? It sounds like the writers have got together and be like, ah, it worked last season. Let's just run it back. It was pretty good then. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll, they'll enjoy the callback, right? I'm not joking here when I tell you that once again, a massive typhoon whipped up out of nowhere and tore through the immobile Mongol ships, which remember, they'd been tied together. Lashing the ships together might have been a good way to protect them against, you know, Japanese raids, but it was not a very good way to protect them from a great big bloody typhoon, mate. The storm ripped through the fleet. The ships were blasted to bits. Tied together as they were, the Mongol ships, they were completely helpless. They smashed, they, they smashed either against each other or against the shore itself, almost totally destroyed in the carnage. Again, we don't have rock-solid numbers on the Mongol fleet, but I can tell you this, whether it was 1,000, 2,000, 4,000 ships that set off, only a few hundred survived. And when it came to the soldiers and the crew that were aboard those ships, it is not a pleasant story for the Mongols, let me tell you that. Even their side of the story, even you know when they went to write this down, when they consigned this story to history, even their side of the story tells us that a minimum of 60% of the invasion force lost their lives that day, and it could be as high as 90%. As the ships broke apart on the waves, people desperately cling to bits of splintered wood as they try to stay afloat on top of these turgid waters, hoping to survive the storm. I mean, most of them died of drowning and almost all of those who did survive those who you know washed up on the shore were summarily rounded up and executed by the japanese with no questions well actually with a few questions asked the japanese they didn't ex- execute everyone in fairness they spared anyone um who was from southern china anyone who was a former subject of the song dynasty why you ask well because the Japanese knew that the southern Chinese had been dragged into the invasion against their will. They knew that many people had been conscripted. They didn't want to fight, uh, didn't want to be there, didn't believe in the invasion in the first place. So they spared their lives, which you'd think is you know, quite merciful until you learn that the Japanese just enslaved them instead. But all the other Chinese, all the Koreans, and of course all the Mongols, they were, uh, they were executed without, uh, you know, without fear or favour, and, and that was the end of them. A few Mongol ships did make it back west to tell the sorry tale to Kublai Khan, who, after you know, having lost a second shorefire invasion attempt to another bloody typhoon, he decided that he knew when to fold them, and so he gave up altogether. And the Mongols, the Chinese, they never again made an attempt on Japan. I mean, not that they could have, had they wanted to. Uh, the resources lost during these two invasions made a third one more or less a logistical impossibility. The Korean shipyards didn't have the lumber for one, and even if they did, who would crew the ships with so many people dead? Uh, Chinese invasions of Japan, were, in fact, were, were put on the back burner for a long time after this, even during the Ming Dynasty, which lasted through to the 17th century. All discussions of invading Japan, they were put aside, they were put aside as soon as anyone 
brought up the typhoon thing. As soon as you know, they're sitting around the table, like, oh, maybe it's time to. Uh, no, 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 we're not doing that again. We're not invading. We're not invading the Japanese again. We're not bloody. We're not, it's it's not going to be third time lucky, mate. It's going to be another. It's going to be another typhoon, and we're not we're not going anywhere near that. These invasions ended up having a huge influence there, right? They had a huge influence. They the, the region was was very strongly affected by the the legacy of these invasions. Japan was left well enough alone. Its unswerving isolationism continued for centuries to come. But as for the invasion's internal consequences for Japan, not the regional consequences, but internally, they were no less influential. Check this out, right? The Japanese expected a third attack. They kept a vigilant watch on the coastline and maintained their defences for the next three decades, expecting the, uh, the, uh, the Mongols, the Chinese, to try again. But of course, another attack never came. Twice typhooned, thrice shy, as the saying goes. But I mentioned before the most important, um, the most important consequence of these uh, of these invasions, these failed invasions. I mentioned before, the Kamakura were in the bad books of all the samurai, the Kamakura shogunate. The samurai weren't the biggest fans of them after they didn't pay up in the wake of the first invasion. Remember that. Well, once again, they weren't hugely forthcoming with rich rewards after the second invasion was seen off. Well, I say seen off was blown off again. They didn't really have all that much to give, to be fair, but that which they did have, they gave to the priests, not the soldiers. The priests claimed that their prayers had delivered Japan from the enemy, not the blokes who were out there fighting. And uh, so the samurai and the the soldiers, they got very little. And as this was a war of defence too, there was no looting, there was no pillaging, there was no booty to keep the soldiers happy. As a result... There was widespread unhappiness amongst Japanese soldiers, and all of this didn't go down very well with the samurai classes. You know, these uh, the, these noble uh, the, the warriors again, the, the the broad broad equivalents of, U- of European knights. These they, they were not very happy with how this whole uh, how this thing panned out, and these tensions that developed between the shogun the, the shogunates, the, the the upper levels of government, and the um you know and the and the, the, the samurai classes. These tensions lasted for a long time. Long enough, in fact, that in 1331, the emperor of Japan, a bloke named Go Daigo, he decided that he'd haven't he'd had enough of being a powerless figure. He was the emperor, remember, he was just a figurehead. He decided he had enough of that, and so he rose in, I guess, rebellion. Not really. Re- I mean, how can it be rebellion against your own government, against the shogunate? I mean, it's weird for the emperor of a nation to rebel against the rulers of that nation, but that is. Kind of what happened. Go Daigo, he sought to overthrow the Hojo clan and seize power for himself as an emperor in both name and deed. And guess whose side the samurai picked when the emperor raised his banner against the Kamakura for war? Guess which side of this conflict the samurai came? Well, of course, the samurai, they hated the shogunate. They'd been mistreated. They hadn't got the rewards that they wanted in uh, in the wake of these uh, invasions. And when this emperor stands up and said, all right, enough's enough, the samurai all, well, not all of them, but a lot of them came to his aid and helped him win the civil war and put him, well, not on the throne, but on the throne in a, in a you know de facto sense as well as a de jure sense. It made a, a, a very big difference, that, uh, that slight change there. After years and years of mistreatment and dissatisfaction with the shogunate, uh, the, the samurai largely threw their weight behind Godaigo. They helped him take power for himself, and that was the end of the Kamakura shogunate. In some parts, due to the consequences of the Mongol invasions, 50 years previous. Of course, there was other stuff that went into it, but the dissatisfaction of the samurai in the wake of the Mongol invasions was critical in turning the tide of the war for Godaigo. But today, there's another direct legacy of these invasions, and it's one that you have almost certainly heard of, even if you didn't know its origin. 
I mentioned before that the Japanese priests took a lot of credit for these victories against the Mongols. They said that their prayers had summoned the typhoons and brought about this, uh, how could you describe them? I suppose you could describe them as divine wind. And this name, divine wind, it passed into history when referring to the way that these two typhoons had rebuffed the Mongol invasions. This was the centerpiece, the divine wind was the centerpiece of the stories that was told to generations of Japanese soldiers for centuries about their triumphs in the Mongol invasions. And this was not the end of the concept of divine wind being a very, very big part of the military history of Japan. Because, of course, divine wind, as you may have already guessed, translates into Japanese as kamikaze, the very same name that was given to the units of Japanese fighter pilots who flew suicide missions during the Second World War by crashing their planes into Allied warships. In 1944 and 1945, kamikaze attacks grew increasingly common in the Pacific theatre of the war, peaking of course during the Battle of Okinawa in 1945. Many people associate them with the attack on Pearl Harbour, but kamikaze units uh, actually didn't even exist. They hadn't even been founded in 1941, so uh, so, that, so they actually didn't play a part in that uh, in that battle there. But towards the end of the war, the Japanese sent hundreds of kamikaze Kamikaze pilots to their deaths in attempting, in attempting to, uh, to sink Allied ships. And all of these pilots took their name from a piece of Japanese history from almost 700 years previous. Although, thankfully, the divine wind didn't blow quite as strongly in the 1940s as it did in the late 13th century. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Mongol invasions of Japan. And uh, as I say, just lazy writing. Just lazy writing on the part of historians, really. What's that? Couldn't couldn't think of anything. Couldn't think of anything better than just two ty- the same thing, running it back, the same the same story arc both times. Unbelievable. It'd be panned these days, Nolly. It would be absolutely panned. Yeah, that sort of thing on the big screen. Anyway, that is that for another episode of Half House History. Thanks for tuning in. As ever, the normal boring uh, housekeeping nonsense here. Halfhousehistory.net. You can go there and listen to old episodes. You, you can subscribe, of course, and there's a contact. If you want to get in touch with an episode suggestion, and uh, patreon.com slash half history, if you want to support the show financially, you can gain early access to episodes, you can see the show notes, you can hear all my burps and farts on the uncut episodes as well, uh, or become an executive producer of the show by going to patreon.com slash half history. I very much appreciate all the support. Thank you so much to all the patrons who are uh, chucking me money every month. I don't pretend to understand it, but I'm very appreciative of it all the same. Anyway, that is that for another episode, of course, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. Before I'll be back with you for more half House History next week. This one comes to us from Abu Ben Adam, who asks, very relevant question for anyone uh, with primary school kids. Uh, you'll, you'll certainly have heard of this. I am the son of a 13th century Mongol warlord trying to acquire the skills I'll need to lead the horde. When will all of these Khan Academy courses finally get to the point? 